Amen, so let it be. What an amazing thing we were just singing. The magnitude of the things we sing about when we gather here on Sunday morning is just astounding. It really is. We can't get used to it. We were just declaring that there's coming a day when Jesus is going to say to all the dead in Christ, get up. Remember how Jesus told that little girl who had died, little girl, arise. He's going to say that to everybody who's died in Christ. The resurrection word is what we've been singing about. That's a sure hope that we have that guides us through our lives as God's people. And that's what we're doing here. We're affirming what God has guaranteed will take place. Like Jeffrey said, our passage this morning has this amazing line that God who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He'll he'll get it done. He got you in this in the first place. He'll get you through it. He will get you home looking just like Jesus, hearing well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we have to look forward to. God has guaranteed that for God's people who've put their faith in Jesus because Jesus has that resurrection word. He has the last word. I have a friend whose wife died last week and um, left him with two little ki- three little kids and... Uh, I just wrote to him, and I said, Steve, I'm just so grateful that Jesus has the last word. As hard as this is, even death doesn't have the last word with Jesus. And so I'm just grateful for the things we're affirming. But there's this interesting reality in the midst of affirming these sure things. You'd think, well, if it's a done deal, if God's guaranteed it's going to happen, well, let's just wait around for it to happen. What are we doing here? Why would we be wasting a whole Saturday, Sunday morning gathering as God's people? Let's just go about our business and wait for Jesus to come back. No, the way he's designed things is we attend to certain means of grace that fill our lives with the faith, hope, and love required to get home. God doesn't get us home without means, without circumstances, without history, personal history, human history. And so the fact that God has guaranteed he's going to get us home one day with his resurrection word doesn't mean we don't avail ourselves to his means of grace and attend to excelling still more. this tension we find in the Bible that the Bible doesn't see as much of a tension. It just sees it as how it is. And so that's why we gather. That's why we become men and women of the word and of prayer and of fellowship and service and mission and all the things we do, suffering to the glory of God. That's why we do these things because they're the means God uses to get us home. And he's guaranteed we'll get home. So what a totally different perspective we can have because of that. Amen, so let it be. That's why we're here, because we're so confident in who God is. Wow, the book of Philippians is what we're diving into. Last week we had those powerful recitations of four of our dear saints reciting four of the chapters in this great book. I am so confident that God's going to use the book of Philippians powerfully in our lives, and already is, no doubt. I know he is. I've been hearing how he's already doing that. And so I am so grateful that I get to preach the first sermon as we dive into this series in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So would you open your Bibles to Philippians 1, and we will read that and dive in together. Philippians 1, 
sort of near the end of the New Testament, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Philippians chapter 1. Let's listen to God's word together. Help us, Lord, now as we go to your word to hear from you and be changed as the Spirit works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The defense, and uh, for God is my witness how I, listen to this, yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Oh my. I said to Kenny when I walked in this morning, you know, there are some passages in the Bible where if we could just really get that passage down, everything would be fine. This is so loaded with such rich teaching and perspective on our lives and on ministry and what it means to be the church. Oh, Lord, please help us to grasp this like never before. This is a passage so sure of what God has done and will do that it calls us to live lives filled with abundant love. It's an awesome calling we have before us right here. We are the people of God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, if you've said no to your sin and yourself as any means of standing before God and said Jesus' blood and righteousness alone and his resurrection power in my life has now changed everything about me. I'm a new creature. I'm not who I was. The old is gone. The new has come. If that's you, you're part of the people of God and your life has the capability of being so radically different than it would be otherwise because of the power of the gospel at work in your life. And we are called to be the people of God, so different than the people of the world. Sheldon Van Auken was a very skeptical person when it came to the Christian faith. And in a book he wrote called Encounter with the Light, he describes his conversion experience. And he says this, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. 
when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Oh, we need to have good reasons for what we believe and good arguments to demonstrate those good reasons. That's why we're having Bill Craig come here tonight and I'm going to ask him lots of questions because he is one of the foremost apologists in the world and we want to think well about what we believe. But he would agree with me, he was in the first service, he would agree with me that the backdrop of these good arguments has to be transformed lives. Not as the gospel. The gospel is already completed by God in Christ, but as a demonstration of the reality and power of the gospel. The good news is not that I've been redeemed, but the demonstration of the gospel is that we've been redeemed and we're no longer who we used to be. And we're very different now. And so the themes we find in verses 1 through 11 really set the stage for these themes to continue to be shown throughout the whole book. And these themes are Christ and his good news are the core of everything else good in us. Everything else good in this world is traced back to Jesus Christ and him crucified in our place, in his righteous life in our place, and his victorious resurrection so he can have the last word, that resurrection word. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that we were made to have relationship with God, but like sinners, we all are, went astray from him and desperately needed a savior, and Jesus is that savior. That's the gospel, and that's the message woven through this. I don't know if you noticed how many times the name of Jesus showed up in these first 11 verses, but it's seven. It'll get up to 18 by the end of the chapter to 36 by the end of the book. Jesus is what this book is about. Jesus is our life. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the anchor of everything. Everything. Church, let's not ever get distracted from that truth. Let's never get diluted from that truth. Let's never get off course that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners... That's the message of the gospel. And yes, that has radical implications for every area of our lives to be sure. And it should transform us as we'll see. But the anchor is a done deal in Jesus' work. Let's never get distracted from that. We're tugged in a thousand different directions. People are always telling us what the gospel's really about and what it really is and what the church should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And we need to stay focused on Jesus and his work in our place as the core of everything. Let's not lose sight of that. Oh, let's be connecting all the dots to where that goes in our lives for sure. But let's not get it twisted and turn those implications into the good news. And so, Jesus and the gospel is the core of everything. Second big point through this passage and this book is our lives are to be marked by servanthood and deep Christian fellowship. Christ and the gospel, the core of everything. Our lives are to be marked by servanthood and deep fellowship. Three, we have a future orientation to our present lives. What God has said he will accomplish needs to invade our present lives. And what he will accomplish is based on what he's done in the past. Jesus and the gospel. And finally, the gospel taking root in our lives leads to abundant love and the fruit of righteousness. 
Those four points. Christ and the gospel are the core of everything. Our lives are to be marked by servanthood and fellowship. We have a future orientation of our present lives. And the gospel taking root leads to abundant love and the fruit of righteousness. What this passage is that we just read is basically an expression of the Apostle Paul's thankfulness and joy in the context of prayer on behalf of those he deeply loves in Philippi. That's what's going on here. Gratitude, joy, prayer in relationship. He's on death row. He's recording a letter. I guess you call this death row records here. And he is. He's recording a letter on death row. Imagine your frame of mind if you were in prison with your impending martyrdom awaiting. I'm just stunned by how enthusiastic and exuberant and grateful and joyful he is. It just seems like everything in our society would lead us to no conclusion in this context, but, well, this really stinks. That's just how we're taught to be all the time. But can you imagine sitting down to write this letter to the Philippians in jail with your beheading on the way in Rome, probably in Rome, And remembering how the church in Philippi, where these people are now serving Jesus, started. Remember how it started? Kenny unpacked this for us last week before the the passages were read. It, It started really in a prison cell. Paul and Silas are thrown in the prison in Philippi under persecution. And rather than saying, well, this stinks. Well, you're so realistic and honest, aren't you? How raw of you. That's great. Way to be authentic. (laughs) Well, I suppose if that's all you got. But God's people have more than authentic bitterness. We have hope. We have joy. The church in Philippi starts in a prison. Paul and Barnabas are thrown in the prison and they don't sit there wallowing in their own self-pity or bitterness. They sing worship to God. They didn't know what that was going to lead to. They didn't know if this was the end of the road for them. But they're singing worship to God. And an earthquake happens. The Philippian jailer comes to Christ and the church is established in Philippi. An amazing story. So now when he's in prison again, you think he's going to be filled with despair and angst and bitterness? No, I've said, I've been here before. I don't know what the details will be. All I know is that God told me I'll suffer wherever I go. So this is part of the deal. And he writes this letter of exuberant joy. Oh, he doesn't neglect his chains. They actually become, his imprisonment, his persecution becomes a source, as we'll see, of encouragement to the believers. And so here he is writing a letter from prison, remembering being in prison in this very place. Oh, it's just amazing, isn't it? How easily um, disappointed we are. It's just amazing. We are so easily disappointed. I'm including myself in this. It's just amazing how I just expect things to go my way. Where traffic makes me homicidal. (laughs) I don't deserve this. In Southern California, you know. It's raining. I had a picnic planned. That's why I moved here. That's why I pay this high cost of living. So I can have a picnic when I want to. 
It's raining. It's amazing how, how we have these, these expectations for our lives could go. But here we see this joy, this gratitude, this exuberant love that isn't deterred even by drastically difficult circumstances. Let's, let's ask God to show us just how shallow and petty we've become, many of us. Oh, some of you are heroic in living just these kinds of lives as well. But many of us have gotten sucked into an entitlement culture where we're just a bunch of whiners. And I'm... I'm I'm repenting as I say that. So here we are, this amazing letter. Let's, let's just walk through it and look at some really important things here. Look how he starts, Paul and Timothy. Don't rush past that. I think that's really important. This is how Paul starts his letters. He'll include another leader in his beginning address, some, at one time it's Sosthenes. It's, it's usually Timothy, but it's also Silas in another place. So he'll begin his letters making sure they know that even though Paul is the apostle Paul, the pioneer missionary of the church, the one who reached out to the Gentiles first, who God is using amazingly, he wants them to know that this is not some solo venture. This is not a one-man show. He's in it with these partners in the faith. And then he calls them his partners, doesn't he? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're partners with him. Same idea in the second half of verse 7. What does he call them? They are, um, oh wait, where am I? Yeah, seven. Yeah, partaker, there it is, thank you. You're just with me. You're, you're not on Facebook, that's for sure, yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're partakers, right? They're partakers. They're, they're partakers with this. If, if you know Dave Daly, he's sitting right over there. If you, Dave, wave. Wave to everybody. Dave Daly is a wonderful man. You know, I was wondering, Dave, probably you signed your correspondence to believers probably more than any other way as partners, comma, Dave. Is, this, is that verse where you got this, or is that just, yeah. Well, well you, just the way Dave, Dave signs his correspondence is affirming this partnership idea. This isn't a one-man show. The, it, but, man, the American mentality is so individualistic and celebrity-oriented that it so quickly becomes about this person. You know, uh, Sherry Harris' father, Ray Ortland Sr., was the pastor at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, which at the time when Ray was the pastor there, it was probably one of the top ten most influential churches in the country. Just such a thriving, successful church. And my friend Jerry Root said, I have tremendous respect for Ray Ortland Sr., even though I didn't know him well, because he said, in all my years of living in Southern California, I never once heard someone refer to Lake Avenue as Ray Ortland's church. He did something in the way he led where it wasn't all about him. That's just not the American way. It, individualistic, celebrity-oriented, we just love to make it all about one person on a pedestal. But that's not even how it was for the Apostle Paul. You know, we try to do this at Grace with our plurality of elder model. Where we, we, you know, the, uh, the idea of a senior pastor, even though it's just embedded in our philosophy of ministry and our culture, it's not in the New Testament. I'm not saying it's wrong or it, it's not okay to do, I guess, but it's just not in the New Testament. 
And I think it ends up leading to a mentality about ministry that's professionalized and has titles associated with it. And before you know it, a guy like Sonny Massey, you guys know Sonny, stand up. Would you stand up, Sonny? Stand up, Sonny. This is Sonny Massey. I bet a lot of you don't even know Sonny. Sonny's one of the most godly men I've ever known in my life. He's like a father in the faith to me. And he was an elder here for years. How long have you been here, Sonny, at Grace? 43 years. I guess the Peters. Are you the only one? Yes. You're the only Peters. How long have you been here? 45. Oh, two years. Two years. You got two years. Okay, so Sonny is a godly man, and he's an elder at this church and for years. And if, if you don't consider Sonny a pastor of this church, even though he was a banker, that's how he made money as a banker for, for his, most of his adult life is his career. So he's a banker. But if Sonny Massey visits you in the hospital, you've been visited by a pastor of grace. And so this idea of team ministry, that it's not about an individual. It's, people say to me, well, you guys don't have a pastor? I say, actually, we have an army of them. A whole army of them. Our grace group shepherds are, are serving a pastoral function, a, a role here. Our, our, uh, we have so many people in so many ways functioning as pastors and shepherding God's people here at Grace. So he, he, this partnership idea is a beautiful thing he establishes here. And what kind of partnership? Well, it's gospel partnership. It's not oriented around hobbies or personality types or backgrounds. Or it's, it's oriented around the gospel, that we're about the same thing primarily together. Oh, it'll look different in the details of how we do it, but it's about gospel prayerfulness, gospel proclamation, gospel giving, gospel examples. And I want you to realize how he starts off referring to himself and Timothy, servants, doulae, this word that's better translated actually slaves. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. We don't have any independent will from Jesus. We submit to Jesus. We obey Jesus. He's our master. We're slaves of Christ. What a way to start. You know, no resume of his impressive credentials. Now, he's a little more free to do this with the Philippians because his authority isn't being challenged like it is in some other letters where he, he just can't believe he's got to actually talk about his credibility, including his suffering. But here he feels a freedom to just say, I'm just a slave right along with you. That's a beautiful description of a Christian. He's a slave. And then who does he address this to? All the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. All the saints, the hagioi, the, the holy ones, the set-apart ones. I think one of the worst things that's happened in the history of the church in the way we talk about Christians is that word saints that he uses there has been reduced to a select few the church has decided had sainthood. And We'll even use it in, in a more colloquial way where we'll say, oh, my Aunt Jane, she is a saint. Even if she's not a Christian. No, in the Bible, there's no more important term to describe the people of God than the, the holy ones, the, the hagioi, the set-apart ones, the ones because they're in Christ, not because they've attained all these great religious accomplishments, because they're in Christ, they're the holy ones, the set-apart ones. That's who they are. 
So if we are going to use that as a title, we need to use it for all the believers in, in the world. St. Michael, right here. Say, Hello, St. Michael. Yeah. <laughs> right. St. Ethan. Yes, it, it's, it's a sainthood we all have, right? St. Anna. That sounds great. St. Anna. Yeah, so we, we should have a, an idea that we're all set apart saints. And that's what he says. So they're servants, they're saints. And he says all the saints in Philippi, all those believers who are saints. So right off the bat in the way he addresses them, he's affirming this profound truth that Jesus has set them apart for himself and for gospel ministry. The holy ones, the saints, the servants, the partners. But then he says... And the overseers and deacons. This word overseers is a word you could translate elder. Overseer is probably technically a better word. Elder it makes you think just an old dude. But no, it's not all it is. Uh, it, it's someone who takes responsibility for caring for the flock. And yes, authority comes with that, along with the deacons who take responsibility for care of the flock with a greater degree of importance put on the practical needs of the church. That's these two roles in the church. So you and your buds at Starbucks are not the church in the sense that it needs to be in your life if, for instance, you don't have elders, overseers, and deacons that you submit to. And so there's this important gentle tension and balance in the church between legitimate authority God's entrusted to those who lose sleep for the good of the flock humbly serving, and the submission that the flock is called to. And that submission starts with the leaders. I, I think leaders should be the most submissive, starting with the way they submit to one another. You know, let me just, I think it's important to recognize this. Not, not to put anybody on a pedestal, but to recognize what I'm talking about. So if you've been an elder at Grace, or are one now, would you stand up? Okay, stay standing. If you've been a deacon or are a deacon at Grace, would you stand up? Okay, isn't that beautiful? They're, these are some who aren't better than anybody else, but have demonstrated the character the Bible requires and have been put in this role in our flock to care for us. These are the ones who, who lose sleep because they're caring for the flock, who extend themselves. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, so... So we are to look to those in leadership. We should aspire to roles of leadership. And so at the same time, he's affirming that we're all saints, we're all slaves, we're all partners. There still at the same time are those who are entrusted with leadership that comes with authority. And it's this beautiful balance between humble leadership and joyful submission to that leadership. So last thing I want you to notice about the very beginning verses is it's the saints in Philippi. It's not just Christians wherever. There's a specificity to this local church. They are located in a particular place that have particular leaders that they submit to. And so there's a clarity about who these people are, which is why we take membership at Grace very seriously. Because we want to acknowledge that we are a church family with leaders and, and a structure. And anybody who just shows up on a Sunday morning isn't necessarily part of this. And so we want to identify who is. And so this is the scene we have. And then he dives into this amazing, exuberant, 
expression of gratitude. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Shalom, this, this idea of settledness before God that, he's, that God's accomplished. Grace, this, this amazing kindness of God toward us when we deserve only punishment. And then he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Listen to his love he has for these people. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So even when he sees failure and sin and things that could lead him to despair in the lives of those he's ministering to, he's so confident of the gospels taking root in their lives that he doesn't despair. And he's joyful and grateful. And then listen to how he feels about them. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, it's gospel-centered partnership. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ. And so this beautiful display of his love, his affection, is a great example to us. When the gospel's at the core of everything and when we're in Christ and we've been loved by him, we realize that loved people love people and that spills out into our relationships. And the gospel takes over. And in verses three through 11, we get this beautiful picture of Christian relationships that are deep and affectionate, tender affection. It seems that the Apostle Paul never suffered from dry-eyed Christianity. Remember when he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders where he spent three years establishing that church there where there were riots and revivals and he says goodbye to them and he says, all I know is I'll never see you again. And he said some amazing things in his departure, but the thing it says that grieved them most was that they would never see his face again. And it says they literally fell on each other's necks and wept and held one another and got on their knees and prayed before he got on the ship and left. We have seen so many people come to grace and leave with tears like they're being ripped away. And so they feel that way and we feel that way and it's right that we do. Doesn't mean we cling to people when God calls them somewhere else needlessly, but it does mean it should hurt when we leave our church family in both directions because we're family. And that's how it feels when family is separated. Remember one time, Rick Floyd, when we were <laughs> crying about saying goodbye to a sister who had been here and wonderfully ministered in our midst, he just said, It's just not supposed to be this way. Well, it is this way in a fallen world, but one day we'll all be at the wedding banquet and we never need to leave. We never need to be torn asunder again. And so these, these what you could call vocatives of affection, these terms of endearment, they really spill out in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at he just packs a whole bunch into one verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Listen, did you hear that? The, the, these, these terms of endearment. You know, I call my, my family love. Like, like my daughter walked in last night. She's not here yet. My daughter walked in last night, and I said, welcome home, love. These terms of endearment, you know. Um, 
Sometimes they're strange in marriages and they require a lot of explanation, but, but they're, they're still terms of endearment, right? But listen to my, my brothers, my, my loved ones, my longed for ones, my joy, my crown, my beloved. He just packs all these terms of endearment. Is that beautiful? We need to learn to talk to one another more that way. And we can't do that honestly unless God does something in our heart and gives us a love for one another where that's honest. And we actually do feel that way and it's not forced. And I'm not saying we, we, we wait until we feel that way to talk that way because sometimes feeling that way requires talking that way first. And so these affectionate terms, this love that is felt and affectionate and expressed needs to typify Christian fellowship, tender affection among believers, unity in spite of all the things that would separate us without a sense of entitlement or pettiness, or part, but, but rather partnership and attitude and action. The church is that which God bought with his own blood on a cross. The church belongs to Jesus and it is precious to him. Is it precious to you? Do you love the people of God? Not just the idea of the church, not just the church victorious in glory someday, but the church now with all the people that annoy you that you just don't like very easily. You think Paul just naturally clicked with everybody in Philippi? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. He was a Jew. They were mostly Gentiles. Right there, we've got this massive cultural difference. So many differences could pull us apart, but none of those do when the gospel's really working. Does your life reflect that love for the church? Is there a critical spirit toward the church? Are you above the church, not, need, not in need of the church? That's not true. You are in need of the church. You know, it's really cool to bash the church these days, even among Christians, especially, I think, younger Christians, because it shows how real you are and self-critical and authentic to criticize yourself. And we need to be self-critical, to be sure, but in a way that's respectful and loving, where we see that which we're criticizing, criticizing as the bride of Christ, for whom he died. Make sure people are picking that up as you say the church has failed. I just heard yesterday a man who claims to be a Christian to say the church is an utter failure. I didn't pick up any love in his voice for this utter failure that is the bride of Christ who Jesus says the gates of hell will never prevail against. Do you love the church, the, the real annoying people who make it up? Not just the idea of it. There's so many things that keep us from this kind of love, but listen to what Jesus says, by this they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John says this in 1 John 3, we know we've passed out of life into death because we love the brethren. And he who does not abide in love abides in death. That means this is long haul, not fair weather friend kind of love. It's like a Cubs fan. <laughs> who after generations of losing and losing and losing still wears that Cubs hat. It, it's someone who isn't easily deterred from this. It's someone who loves when the honeymoon's over. I watch this happen. Man, I'm really getting insight into this these days. We move into a relationship with a roommate or a friend or a spouse or a church or an automobile. <laughs> and it's just so great. 
Oh, we just have so much in common, and this is just so awesome. We just love each other, and oh, my, my old relationship or church or car had this annoying thing about it, but not this one. I just love it. It's so good. And then we move in with enthusiasm to a, a new semester even of school, and so oh, this is great, new books. This is so wonderful. Three weeks in, prof is such a jerk. Gave me a D. I hate him. My wife is kind of boring. My car doesn't have that new car smell anymore. My church has people I really have a hard time loving. And we move into this sometimes with churches, this two-year phase of meh. Nah, it's not quite like it used to be. No, something's changed in your heart. And we get bored, or we get annoyed, or we get hurt, or we get offended. And I'm not saying there aren't good reasons to leave churches in different times. But I think the American mentality is so consumeristic. Where the minute it's not working out the way we thought it should, or if it's hard, we just go to the one down the street. There was probably just one in Philippi. Do you imagine how great that would be? You were either committed to meaningful fellowship or kicked out of the church or living like a pagan. Those are the three options. And here, here we just go to the next one or, or fancy the, the podcast king we like to listen to and are just disillusioned with our preacher. And I'm not talking just about here. I, there's been so actually, relatively speaking, little of that kind of thing at Grace. This has been the most wonderful congregation through the years that seems like such a different subculture than the norm. It's just beautiful the way God has so often kept us from these kinds of cultural invasions. Listen to C.S. Lewis. There's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change your heart. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And so we need to be people who love each other with brotherly affection. That's what the Bible says, from the heart. Transformed hearts that love. This transformation takes place in the way we love each other and forbear with one another. And love people like brothers and sisters who you would never even know or have any interest in knowing if it weren't for Jesus. That's what we're called to, that kind of love. And it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. We come up with all kinds of excuses for it. I remember my dad, um, my parents were divorced when I was little, and I'd see my dad for about six or eight hours every Saturday, just about every Saturday. And he'd take us to the park or a matinee, and he worked so hard during the week. He'd usually figure out ways to 
play with us where he could eventually have it sleep. And so matinees were great for that. Um, and so was playing steamroller at the park where he would just lay there and he would roll and we would try to not get crushed by the steamroller. But that always ended up, always ended up in a nap. It certainly doesn't require much creativity to just roll. I've actually done it with my kids. It's, it's a good activity when you're really tired. And, but he would, he would take us out. But I, I remember I was eight years old when my grandfather died. My grandfather, um, Eddie Tannis, emigrated from Germany, and he was a very stereotypical German. Um, stoic, serious, hardworking. And one day in church... In his mid-60s, he had a, a coronary, and he went into a coma and didn't come out for a couple of weeks. And my dad flew home and spent a lot of that time with his father. And my, my dad was a rebel when he was a young man, and so didn't have a great relationship with his dad. And so he spent a lot of time there in the hospital with his dad trying to work through this sudden event in his life. And my grandfather was very fastidious. He just would... Um, make sure he was shaving and things. So he, when he was in, the, in a coma and needing a shave, my, my dad decided to give him, give him one. And he was shaving his father, you know, and he stopped and he thought, I think this is the first time I ever remember touching my father's face. And it was very moving to him. And he thought, how sad. The first time I remember touching my father's face, he's not even conscious. And he died a short time later. Well, my dad, I found out much later, had decided in that hospital room, it's not going to be that way with my boys. And so he decided to start showing us affection. He never had really before, but he decided to. And I didn't know it. I didn't know the backstory, so it was really strange. <laughs> And he wasn't good at it. My, I was eight. My brother was ten. We weren't good at it. We were these tough kids. Sort of, and, and so it, they were the most, I wish we had video of them. They were the most awkward hugs you've ever seen. It's like, all right, I'll see you next week. <sighs> it was like, what was that? That was very strange. It, but I love that he committed to that. I love that he committed to that. Now when I see my dad, we hug each other. We'll even hold that hug for a while and, and we'll kiss each other on the cheek. It's not weird or awkward at all. But so often our relationships, it's not there. And so we just don't get there because it's too awkward or too hard or it's not how we've done it or it's not my personality or it's not my culture. Or it's not my background. It's not my family. It was like all these excuses that keep us from affection in words and in actions and even physically in, in, in appropriate ways. We've, we've got to be a people who are the family of God. You know, the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. And if you're not going to take that seriously, you need to figure out an appropriate 21st century Southern California equivalent. <laughs> Whatever you think that is. We've, we've got to be people who show family affection to one another. And not only do that, but, but point out when we see, we need to be grace detectors. Say, Look at God at work in your life. You know, Kenny sent this to me. This is, Melody Litzaw wrote this about Conchie Henderson. <laughs> if you know Conchie, you know how true this is. Listen to what she put, I think, on Facebook. She has a beautiful picture of Conchie. And then she says this, I'm so thankful for this beautiful, servant-hearted friend. She's such an encouragement to me and a wonderful example 
of what it means to be the church. All caps, church. Thank you, Conchi, for coming over early this morning to change out my feeding tube. Thank you for busting my kids around, for bringing us meals, for praying for me and with me, for making me feel seen, for being a listening ear, and for pointing me to Christ. I love you, friend. Oh, that's fantastic. I just love that. I don't know what I love more. Conchie's gospel ministry to Melody Litsaw or Melody Litsaw's gospel affirmation of Conchie publicly. They're equally good. I'm not going to choose. See, that's Christian fellowship, pointing me to Jesus, praying for me, yes, and doing pre- getting up early and coming out and doing stuff that nobody knows about except Mel, right? That's the people of God. And I could tell you story after story, one of the hardest things about being a leader here is not breaking confidence constantly about things we find out as elders and brag about. Our elders' meetings over the years have been so often just bragging about the amazing people in this church who love each other in that kind of way. And let's let our love abound more and more. That's what he prays for. Did you hear the prayer? Oh, you want to talk about a prayer. You want to talk about, we got the Lord's prayer. Well, here's the partner's prayer. The partner's prayer says this. Listen to what he prays. Oh, we need to pray that you'll get that job or get over your cold or get that internship or be able to afford that car you need. Oh, we, we need to do all that. But how about this kind of prayer being at the core of our prayer lives? Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What an awesome prayer that is. That is just a way to pray for people. We, we need to see this kind of prayer at the heart of our prayer life. Yes, we pray about all those other things in our lives. For sure, God cares about the sparrow and has the hairs of our head numbered. He cares about the things that seem insignificant. But at the heart of our prayer for one another and for ourselves, abounding love that's growing more and more, not just sentimentality with just emotion, but grounded in knowledge and discernment that leads us to understand what is excellent, approve it and pursue it, not settling for even mediocrity, but only what's best in the way we invest our time and money and, and resources and recreation and everything, what's best, so that we'll be pure, undefiled, and blameless with no one to be able to lay a charge against us on judgment day when Jesus returns, where the, the fruit of our righteousness in Christ is on display so that God is glorified and praised. That's what's going on there. A beautiful example of these demonstrations of the fruit of righteousness and God's work in our lives through the gospel so that we live cruciform lives, cross-shaped lives based on Jesus' work for us that we see in Philippians 2 that we'll get to in a few weeks. Those who are affected by Jesus, that are through Jesus enabled to be this way, will be ready for his coming when he returns. That's what it means to be the people of God. Now we take the Lord's Supper. This is perfect because it's all about the gospel. And that's what this celebration is. It's about the gospel. It's God 
saying when you gather, take some bread and take some wine and, and ingest it together as my people, reminding yourselves what Jesus did for you. This is one of the very few times at our church we say, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're not in, in fellowship, if, or if you're in rebellion against Jesus, this is not a table for you. And we exhort you to get those things right. But if you are in fellowship and with God and with his people and not in rebellion and you've trusted Jesus, this table's for you. And so at Grace, we take the Lord's Supper by coming forward and these priests will offer the elements to you and you take the bread, you dip it in the cup and then as the Lord leads you, you take it on your own and you celebrate with us what Jesus has done for us. If you have a child who's not taking Lord's Supper yet, you can ask for prayer for that child. After the service, there will people who will pray for you about whatever God may have been doing in your life. God is good. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take the Lord's Supper now to the glory and praise of your great name. Thank you for what Jesus has done. I pray as we partake in this remembrance that it would be with joy and gratitude and, and realizing your amazing grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.